0: All right, as we turn now to second kings we 're going to turn to the twenty third chapter as we get ready to begin while you 're turning there i 'm going to ask you to reflect back on Old Testament history and uh, we 've spoken a lot about the Old Testament as of late as we go through Hebrews. certainly, there are pictures and references back, uh, particularly lately we 've been talking about the time of the wilderness, a time that you would think should be a time of devotion and the People who had seen the mighty works of God and His signs and His display, and they think, well, certainly we're going to walk in obedience and faithfulness. And what we find is just the opposite, isn't it? And so uh, we see that as a pattern, sadly enough. That generation dies in the wilderness. That's the picture of Hebrews. And then they move into the land. And you think, well, certainly now this generation that has seen the consequences of disobedience will have learned a lesson. And they will walk rightly before God. But it's not at all like that, is it? They fail to do the very things God has told them to do. Even as they were told, don't be afraid to go up into the land, they do not do as God has commanded and vanquish their opponents and take the land and do all that they're told to do. They begin to worship according to the idols of their neighbors and all the various things that God had warned them about. Over and again, they fall into them. And we've mentioned that the book of Judges is just a great picture of this, isn't it? Just kind of cycles of this kind of pattern. And you can think about it of disobedience and that brings judgment and then there's open rebellion against God and idolatry and then God brings invasion and conquest against them and then they seem to repent and God brings up a deliverer and then there's deliverance and everything should be right again, only it isn't. As soon as there's safety and comfort, right back to the gods of their neighbors. And so again, the cycles just continue and continue. And then we have... Uh, The kingdom, you know, we have David and you think, well, suddenly things must be good. But Solomon follows after and things begin to go awry. And a generation after that, you've got Rehoboam and Jeroboam and the divided kingdom and it all seems to fall apart. And yet God's promise remains. God says His promise is steadfast. It remains in the midst of all these things. In fact, the history from that point forward doesn't seem good at all. But God eventually brings a reformer. Hezekiah, who does great things on behalf of God, empowered by God, drives idolatry out of the land, gets the temple system going again, reforms the priesthood, all the things that that you would hope to see happen, happen. And so it's a a good period. So certainly, after they had seen so much devastation before Hezekiah, They'd seen kind of a resurgence in, in what it meant to be in Judah, you know, God's favor upon the land, a working system. Everything seemed to be good. Certainly now they've learned their lesson. They never learned their lesson, do they? <laughs> Seems like never learned the lesson. And so again, what happens after Hezekiah? Manasseh. How does that happen that you go from a righteous king to his son being so unrighteous a king In fact, Manasseh's reign is so evil that God vows to bring judgment against Judah and won't relent of it. Even after what Josiah does, God says, no, there's still destruction coming. He says through this prophetess that's in the chapters that we're looking at, because of your tender heart, I will spare your days this judgment. In other words, you will die in peace and he dies in battle, but what God means is you will not live to see the downfall of Judah. That's what he's saying. Judah's downfall is coming, but it won't happen on your watch. I'll spare you seeing that, Josiah. But after two evil kings, Manasseh and Amon, they die. In fact, Amon is murdered by his own attendants. You know, they want to get rid of him. He's such an evil man. Who knows who they were going to put on the throne. But the people demand Josiah. Josiah. Josiah is just a child. Just a child. Turn to chapter 22 and it begins by telling you that. Josiah was eight years old when he became king and he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. An eight-year-old. That's the answer? An eight-year-old? The answer is yes. That is the answer. God works mightily through this child who becomes a great man of God. And so we want to look at this today. We want to think about this. But as we're thinking about this king who is not like his father and is not like his grandfather, is maybe more like his great-grandfather, Hezekiah. The Bible says he's like under his father David, right? His ancestor David, a, a man of faith. Josiah is a great king. His name belongs amongst the names of the greatest kings who have ever ruled and reigned because there was a great reformation in his day. He led his nation in reformation. And so we want to look at that on this reformation day. But we have a question as we do so. What is our guide to reformation? What is the tool that we use in reformation? Now we know the Spirit of God must be at work in any movement of reformation. But what is our guide? What is our tool? Well, I think today we will see it in the text that we're given. I want to read our text one more time, 23, 1-3, through 3, and then we'll begin to look at the text. Now the king sent them to gather all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem to him. The king went up to the house of the Lord with all the men of Judah, and with him all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the priests and the prophets, and all the people, both small and great. And he read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant, which had been found in the house of the Lord. Then the king stood by a pillar and made a covenant before the Lord to follow the Lord and to keep His commandments and His testimony and His statutes with all His heart and all His soul to perform the words of the covenant that were written in this book. And all the people took a stand for the covenant. Now those are great words. Words of revival, words of remembrance, words of dedication to the Lord. And uh, they are important words for us to think about today. And so as we do that, I want us to look at three points. First of all, God's tender mercies. We're going to see some tender mercies in this text. Second of all, Josiah's sweeping reforms. And third, God's reforming guide. And I want us to think about these things. So we want to begin with this idea of God's tender mercies. Now, uh, God's mercy is undeniable in the scriptures. Um, We would want to think about His grace over and over again to a people who do not merit it who do not uh, are not worthy of it we see that in this text here is a people that because of their participation under manasseh are worthy of god's wrath make no mistake about that it's oftentimes we blame manasseh but the people participated very willingly in this as these astro poles were put up and the temple was defiled the people were not rebelling against this. They were saying, good, we can finally worship Baal in the temple along with Yahweh. Now, it's hard to imagine, isn't it? That they would ever think this is okay or appropriate, that we can just put up some idols. And by the way, this is what Manasseh was doing. He brought idols into the temple and erected them in the temple. I mean, it's, it's just hard to even imagine. And all over uh, the land of Judah, they were beginning to plant sacred groves. These are uh, either uh, little small groves that were dedicated to the worship of some uh, foreign god, or they had the astra poles in them where they would worship. I mean, again, these are idolatrous creations, if you will, idolatrous places. And they were happening everywhere idols everywhere. Outside the house of the Lord, there were horses devoted to foreign gods. You can read about all this in these chapters. And Josiah looks around and he's like, this is a mess. But before Josiah ever arrives on the scene, we have to recognize that this was a generation worthy of God's destruction, destroying them, wiping them out. They were worthy of it. And so we look at God's tender mercies. We have to recognize that everything that happens in chapters 22 and 23 takes place in light of God's mercy, that God looks upon a people worthy of his judgment. He never says otherwise. In fact, if you read chapter 22, it makes it very clear that though he admires the tender heart of Josiah, the people will still receive judgment. He says that. It's just put off for the sake of Josiah. But I want you to think about this for a moment. Here's a people that deserve judgment, and God gives them several mercies, and one of those is a new king. A new king. A boy of eight years old. A new person to sit upon the throne. Now, What's amazing about this is they could have had just another king, just another Amon, another Manasseh, another one. And yet God gives them this servant that He raises up, Josiah, a great king, a godly man, a righteous man, a man who seeks to serve the Lord. And it says that he was put on the throne at eight years old. He became king and he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. This is chapter 22 as we saw a moment ago. Now look at verse 2. Of 22. And he did what was right in the sight of the Lord and walked in the ways of his father David. He did not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. That's right out of the books of Moses, isn't it? He did what God called his servant to do. He did not turn aside. He walked steadfastly in the direction God called him to do. That right there is the greatest testimony to be said about a servant of the Lord. They did not turn aside either to the right or to the left. They walked steadily and straightly as the path that the Lord had laid out for them. And that's what Josiah did. Now, as we read this, we recognize something tremendous happens. Verse 3 sets the stage for this. Now, it came to pass, anytime the Bible says something like that, you know it's like, behold, listen, something's about to happen. In the 18th year of King Josiah, that is his reign, that the king sent Shaphan, the scribe, the son of Azaliah, the son of Meshulam, to the house of the Lord, saying, Go up to Hilkiah, the high priest, that he may count the money which have been brought into the house of the Lord, which the doorkeepers have gathered from the people. So this is an important moment, isn't it? Hezekiah, who desires to serve the Lord, says it's time to go see what the temple treasuries have and to use that money to fix up the temple. Now, why was this necessary? Well, you can imagine the neglect in the previous two generations widespread neglect no investment in the temple no desire to honor the lord by having a temple that is uh is is fixed up and is a respectable place in fact everything that they did was to tear down the temple to to rid it of its glory to bring idols into it to not repair it and so he recognizes Josiah recognizes the need to fix up the house of the lord and we might say well here is the beginning of the reformation and yet uh, Chronicles tells us that's not accurate, actually. If we turn in, uh, in our scriptures to 2 Chronicles, let me get there. Verse 34, or let me try that again. Chapter 34, there's a little more detail about the walk of Josiah. Beginning 2 Chronicles chapter 34, it says, Josiah was eight years old when he became king. And he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem, and he did what was right in the sight of the Lord and walked in the ways of his father David. He did not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? For in the eighth year of his reign, 16 years old, while he was still young, he began to seek the God of his father David. Notice there's a little more detail, isn't there? When he was 16, he became awakened to the fact that there is a God over his people, that his father, his forefather David, had worshipped this God, the God of Judah, that he had worshipped him. And David becomes aware of this and he begins to seek after the God of his father. In the twelfth year, this is at age 20, he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem of the high places, the wooden images, the carved images, the molded images. They broke down the altars of the Baals in his presence and the incense altars that, which were Uh, Above them he cut down, and the wooden images, the carved images, the molded images, he broke into pieces and made dust of them and scattered it on the graves of those who had sacrificed to them. He had burned the bones of the priests on their altars and cleansed Judah and Jerusalem. And so he did in the cities of Manasseh and Ephraim and Simeon, as far as Naphtali and all around, with axes. When he had broken down the altars and the wooden images had beaten the carved images into powder and cut down all the incense altars throughout all the land of Israel. He returned to Jerusalem. And then if we were going to continue to read, we'd come right back to where we just left in 2 Kings, wouldn't we? That in this 18th year, uh, he wants to repair the house of the Lord. He wants to do this program of repairs. But notice, it's not the initial act. Uh, God had long ago been working on the heart of Josiah had long ago been making Josiah aware of him and Josiah had begun to walk with the Lord even at age 16 and began this program of reformation uh, even at 20 and had begun to do all these things. And there's a lot of symbolism to this and we'll come back to it. I mean, this is literal history, but it's interesting why it says things like through the ashes on the graves of those who sacrificed at the altars. We'll look at that in just a moment. But again, this wasn't in the 18th year, the first thing Josiah had ever done to reform Judah. He had been working on it, maybe not at the speed and the intensity that he does once these events happen that we're reading about today, but he'd already been working toward it. He'd already recognized there was a problem in the land of Judah. Our father David worshipped Yahweh. We've forgotten him. We've got uh, altars to all manners of gods. Tear those down. Let's begin to worship the one true living God. Now we come to this text because there's another blessing of God, not only a new king, but a new discovery. He says to them in verse 4 of Second Kings 22, Go up to Hilkiah the high priest. So here's the high priest serving that he may count the money which has been brought into the house of the Lord which the doorkeepers have gathered from the people. These are the temple taxes, all the various ways that the temple was funded. They kept a treasury there. It had been built up over time. And let them deliver it to the hand of those doing the work who are the overseers in the house of the Lord. Let them give it to those who are in the house of the Lord doing the work to repair the damages of the house. Now that's a sad image, isn't it? The damaged house of the Lord, the damaged temple in disrepair. Pay the workers that they may continue to build back the house of the Lord. And you can see the types of work being done to carpenters and builders and masons. To buy timber and stone to repair the house. Now, it's amazing. Look at verse 8. Here's the new discovery. Then Hilkiah the high priest said to Shaphan the scribe, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. And Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan, and he read it. Now, It's amazing, isn't it? As they're going through uh, wherever they're keeping the the money, whether it's in the treasury or, or whether the high priest just sees this opportunity of reformation to start clearing out some of the old stuff, whatever the case, in this process, he finds a scroll. The scroll of the law, the scroll of the covenant it's described at. Most scholars say this is the Deuteronomy scroll. Somehow it had been hidden away or lost or forgotten. We're not quite sure. I mean, surely it had been forgotten because they discover it again, right? So it had been forgotten, but had it been hidden? Is it possible that Manasseh so hated the teachings of Deuteronomy that the priest hid it so it wouldn't be destroyed by him? That's speculation, but I think it's possible. It's possible. I think it speaks to the evil days that Judah had seen That this scroll is put away. Whether it's put away because nobody wants to read it or it's put away to protect it from those who would hurt it, destroy it. I'm not sure, but it was put away. Put away. Forgotten about. And here Hilkiah comes and he's cleaning out whatever room this is in and he finds this scroll and rediscovers the word of the Lord. He gives it to the scribe. If you continue to read... It's brought to the king. Shaphan the scribe went to the king, bringing the king word, saying, Your servants have gathered the money that uh, was found in the house and have delivered in the hands of those who do the work, who oversee the house of the Lord. And then look at verse 10. Hilkiah the priest has given me a book. Kind of understated, isn't it? He's given me a book. It's the word of the Lord. Now it happened when the king heard the words of the book I want you to focus on this just for a moment because the third thing I want to say here of the mercy of God is not just a king, but a tender-hearted king. A tender-hearted king. One who hears the word of the Lord and doesn't revile it, doesn't want to war against it, doesn't look at how God has offended him, right? But looks at the word of the Lord as something precious and should be listened to. Listen to what it says. Now when it happened, when the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his clothes. A symbol of repentance, remorse, anguish. The king hears the book of the law and it cuts him to the quick of his heart. Now why is that? I think Josiah knew things were bad in Judah. I don't think he knew how bad they were in Judah until he heard the commands of the Lord and how offended by idolatry God is, he didn't realize how evil an age it was that even then they were in. I think that as he heard these things and heard the judgments of God upon a people who turn away from God, that they would be utterly destroyed. He said, why would that not be the case for us? Of course, we should be wiped out. Why would God not have done this? It's like when Christian reads about the city of destruction. Right? He's, He's just upset he's I can't remember the wording that Bunyan uses but he's undone right he is he's frantic what do I do what can I do I can't rest I can't find any relaxation from this knowledge that I'm going to fall under the judgment of God I think Josiah was much like that our nation is going to fall under God's judgment why would it not he swore that if we did the very things we have done he would bring judgment upon us We've offended a holy and righteous God. What are we to do? Now what's interesting to me is his reaction continues. Go find a prophet. Go find someone who can tell us what we are to do. I think he knew on one level to to obey the words of the covenant. I think he knew that. But the prophet that they go to says, listen, as I said earlier, God's judgment will fall upon Judah. That's going to happen now. For the wickedness of the days of Manasseh, the people's participation in it, judgment is coming. But, Josiah, God has noted your tender heart and the way you reacted when you heard that he had been offended. And so he will hold it off. It will not happen in your days. God kept that promise. I want you to think about something for a moment. Everything it seems like in the modern church is done for practicality's sake, isn't it? What works? What's efficient? Let's honor God if it gets us something. Let's honor God if uh, He'll bless us in some way. But that isn't Josiah's aim here, is it? Because Josiah's already heard, Judah's done. As you know it, Judah, judgment is coming. So what's he going to gain by going forward with this reformation? Even accelerating it, what's he going to gain? He's going to gain the only thing that matters, giving honor and glory to God. You see what I'm saying? He's not looking at what he gets out of it. He's looking at the fact that he is to give honor and glory to God. Whatever judgment comes, we deserve it, he says. We have earned it. We have uh, brought that upon our own heads by our wicked behavior, but we still owe God glory. We still owe God glory. And so he gathers the people together. And this brings us to our second point which is his sweeping reforms, and they are many. They are many. In fact, we could walk very slowly through chapter 23, and you all know our normal course of doing things where we may take a verse or two on a Sunday, and we're trying to look at two chapters here, so you're going to have to kind of look at this as a jet tour. But there's much said here. He gathers the elders of the people, the leaders of the people. He gathers them to Him. That's the text we looked at as we read our text this morning. Chapter 23, 1 through 3. And He read them the very law that had convicted Him. Cut Him to the quick of the heart. He read it to them. Do you hear, men, what we've done? We've offended God. We have violated the covenant. We are lawbreakers, not law keepers. We are worthy of judgment. In fact, he may very well have told them, judgment is coming. What are we to do? We are to worship our God. We are to keep the covenant. We are to do as he has called us to do. We are to keep the words of this book which has been found in the house of the Lord. And he stood there and made a covenant before the Lord to follow the Lord and to keep the commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all his heart and all his soul to perform the words of this covenant that were written in the book. But he doesn't stand there alone, does he? It says, all the people took a stand for the covenant. What a beautiful picture that is. Knowing judgment's coming, saying we will still stand and obey God. We will still stand together and commit ourselves to living out what He has called us to live out in this scroll. So my friends, what kind of reformation happens after that? The same sort of things. Accelerated. He cleanses the temple. You can see, uh, look at verse 4. He commanded Hilkiah the high priest, the priest of the second order, and the doorkeepers to bring out of the temple of the Lord all the articles that were made for Baal and Asherah and for all the hosts of heaven. Can you imagine that? You've got to cleanse out the temple of all this junk, all this garbage. And he burned them outside Jerusalem in the fields of Kidron and carried their ashes to Bethel. And there are other things like this. Look at verse 7, that he tore down the ritual booths of the perverted persons that were in the house of the Lord. This is uh, like temple prostitution. They'd set up booths there so you could pay uh, and indulge yourselves in these sorts of acts. He said, get that all, tear it out of here, get it out of here. Has no place in the house of the Lord. Where the women wove hangings for the wooden image. You can go on and see how he cleansed the priesthood. Verse 5. Then they removed the idolatrous priests whom the kings of Judah had ordained to burn incense on the high places in the cities of Judah and in the places all around Jerusalem, and those who burned incense to Baal, to the sun and to the moon, to the constellations and to all the host of heaven. Get rid of all these evil priests. Get them out. They have no place here. And that's what they did. Verse 8, And he brought all the priests from the cities of Judah and defiled the high places where the priests had burned incense from Geba to Beersheba. Also he broke down the high places at the gates which were at the entrance of the gate of Joshua, the governor of the city, uh, which were to the left of the city gate. So again, we're going to get rid of the priests. We're going to get rid of, cleanse out the temple uh, and battle idolatry. You see that there. You see it elsewhere. You can look through all these things. Verse 10, defiled uh, Topheth, which is in the valley of the son of Hinnom. By the way, this is uh, sacrificing your children. Notice what it says there. uh, That no man might make his son or daughter pass through the fire to Molech. They were engaging in child sacrifice. He said, get rid of it. Get rid of it. Remove the horses. This is verses 11. The kings of Judah had dedicated to the son at the entrance of the house of the Lord. Do you like that? Right outside the temple of the Lord, we've got these horses that are dedicated to the sun. You can just look over and over again. You think, how did it ever get this bad? And God raised up Josiah to say, clean it all out. Clean it up. Do what it takes. And you can just go on and on and on with examples given to you in chapter 23. I would encourage you, take time today to read chapter 23 and see what all was done. But you'll notice there's these interesting times where they take the ashes of what they've burnt, the idols and, and these sorts of things, and even sometimes people's ashes, and they scatter them on the graves of those who did this thing. This is, again, the idea of cleansing, a ritual cleansing uh, to, to take away, if you will, or a, a picture of atoning for the evil in the land. All this is what's done. And then notice in verses 21 through 23, He also wants to make sure we obey the word of the Lord. Then the king Josiah commanded all the people saying, Keep the Passover to the Lord your God as as it is written in the book of the covenant. Such a Passover surely had never been held since the days of the judges who judged Israel, nor in all the days of the kings of Israel and and the kings of Judah. And so again in his 18th year they had Passover. And again the idea is obeying the Lord, obeying what He had commanded. Now he accomplished all those things. It's amazing. Accomplished all those things. In a very short amount of time, the Lord was with him. But I want you to listen to what's said about him. If you want to think about all that he accomplished, what a testimony is given to Josiah. Chapter 23, verse 25. Now before him there there was no king like him who turned to the Lord with all his heart, with all his soul, and with all his might according to all the law of Moses nor after him did any arise like him. That's quite a testimony, isn't it? Uh, That's something that if you were in the Scriptures, you'd like written of you, that there had been none like you before and none like you after. Hezekiah has something like this said of him. David certainly is a man like that, that you would say uh, was a man after God's own heart. But there are few that have this kind of testimony about them. And yet Josiah has a testimony like that said about him. So we had a remarkable time of reform, but I want us to think about something here as our final and closing point. We recognize that there had been reformation happening for the six years prior to what we read about in chapters 22 and 23. There had been the tearing down of some altars. There had been work going on. But what is it that accelerated it? What is it that changed it from... Being something Josiah was engaged into, it seems to be a wholehearted effort. It's what consumes him is to do this. Well, I think when you look at it, the change in Josiah was when he read the Word of God. When the Word of God was discovered, when the scroll, the Deuteronomy scroll scroll was discovered, and Hilkiah had read it, and then Shaphan read it, and then now King Josiah had read it, something happens. In Josiah's heart. You can see that because he, he rinses clothes. Why would you do that unless you realize something new from what you'd read? He's convicted by what he's read. He's motivated to do whatever it takes by what he's read. It wasn't the temple building program. In one sense it was. It was through that program that the scroll was found, but it was the scroll itself that seems to bring the change. It was the rediscovered word of God. As we sit here thinking about Reformation Day, what was at the heart of the Reformation? Except the rediscovery of the Word of God. When you look at men that had come long before Luther, the Wycliffs and and the Husses, they had said uh, in battles against the Pope, arguments against the Pope, what is the basis for what we are to do? Is it the Word of the Pope in Rome or the Word of God? And what do we do when they conflict? This was... One of Hus' questions, what do we do when the authority of the Pope, speaking ex cathedra as they say, violates the word of God? What are we to do? The Pope said, I'll tell you what to do, obey me. For I am the one who interprets the word of God, not you. Even a priest trained to read the scriptures, it's not ultimately you who interpret the word, But the Pope, if he comes down and says something, you go with it. And there were numerous times that men like who said, what you're saying violates the Word of God. It's not just that it's a different interpretation. It violates the Word of God. Wycliffe said the same thing. You're violating the Word of God. Now, Luther comes along, and his initial concern is over what? Indulgences. The 95 Theses, we often build up to be about soteriology, and in, in one sense it touches upon soteriology about salvation, but it wasn't directly about it. Luther wasn't in Romans 117 when he wrote those 95 theses. He was looking at Johann Tetzel, who was selling indulgences in the neighboring territory, and his people were traveling across the border and spending money on these nonsenses. Spending money to have their, their great uncle released from purgatory. And Luther knew why all that was being done. He had been to Rome. He had seen they were building St. Peter's and they were broke. They had no money. So the Pope said, we need to sell some some church positions. And so they sold some to a man named Albert. He bought a couple of church positions and he made a deal with the Pope that you will fund me through me getting about 50% of the indulgences sold in my territory. So it's a long, complicated story. But the whole thing was a racket to get money to Rome. And Luther said, you're scaring our people. You're convincing them to sell everything that they have to purchase indulgences so their their grandmother or their mother or their, their brother can be sprung out of purgatory and into glory. And it's all not in the Bible. None of it's in the Bible." And so when Luther wrote those 95 theses, and by the way, go to our church website, Reformation Day page, read them for yourself. Luther's asking, what is the basis for any of this stuff? What is it about? He was looking to the scriptures and saying, I don't see it. Give me a scripture and verse, sir. Where is it to be found? And it's often been said, Luther was just looking for some reform in the Catholic Church. It was the Pope standing on his privilege as Pope that drove him to go beyond that and start questioning other things. What about these other doctrines? I wonder if we have being misled on any of these things. And by God's grace, a year before this event happened in 1517, Erasmus puts out a Greek New Testament. The first time in a thousand years people had access to a Greek New Testament. And suddenly, as they began to look Certain words in Latin didn't mean what they meant in Greek. And Luther said, wait a minute, there's whole doctrines that are based on the Latin text that don't agree with what the Bible actually said. My friends, just like in Josiah's day, it was the rediscovery of the Word of God that led to Reformation. The rediscovery of what God had actually said. And so again, as Luther begins to look at this, and we've talked about this recently, and he begins to look at what the Latin text says, justificare, right? Which means to be righteous. Versus dikaiosune in the Greek, which means to be counted as righteous. Luther said in an instant, now I get it. I, I can't ever be made perfectly righteous as a man in myself. But standing in Christ, in His righteousness, I can be counted righteous before God. He said, in that moment, the gates of heaven swung open wide. My friends, if there's something that I would ask us to think about, it is that we are called to be a people of the book, to be a people in the Word of God, a people reading the Word of God, treasuring the Word of God, looking to the Word of God. Whatever we do, it should be based on the Word of God. When we think about our church and how it should function, it should be based on what's right here. Constantly we should be working toward reforming toward what's here in our lives, in our churches, in every aspect. My friends, we've been given the Word of God. Josiah recognized that and when he discovered what it said, he was cut to the quick of his heart. Luther was as well. My friends, as we read the Word of God, we need to be as well. We need to recognize that God has called us to live holy lives in Christ Jesus, to be about this book, reading this book, treasuring this book, living by this book. My friends, all the great movements of Reformation have happened when people pick this book up, trusting in it, and start reading it and applying it in their lives faithfully.